0: Hey, you guys, welcome back to the 12 6 podcast. I am your host, Colin McHugh. Thanks again for all your feedback and reviews. I read all of them and I try to make adjustments based on what you guys say. Uh, here's a recent review from one of our subscribers. I was worried this would be a very self serious and heavy baseball talk podcast. Thankfully, though, it's a healthy mix of the business aspect and clubhouse culture surrounding a major league player and teammates, plus baseball topics of the day from a player's perspective. It's a really enjoyable podcast and one that I highly recommend to anyone having withdrawal symptoms from the long off-season. Well, guys, the off-season is over. We're here in West Palm Beach for spring training, and today's conversation is hopefully my first of many down here. Our guest today is ESPN baseball sports writer and New York Times bestselling author Jeff Passan. He wrote a book called The Arm, which I read two years ago and cannot highly recommend enough for anyone who is a baseball fan. He's also been on the front lines of free agent discussions this offseason, and recently broke the news of Manny Machado's deal with San Diego. We talk about the state of the game today, our super awkward first meeting, and Jeff's deepest, darkest secret. If you like the podcast, be sure to subscribe so that you're always up to date when new episodes go live. So without further ado, I hope you enjoyed today's conversation with Jeff Passan. Jeff, thanks for being on the podcast, man. I appreciate you coming here. Uh, uh, You're the first writer I've had
1: on here. So, congratulations. Uh, Congratulations to you for slumming. (laughs) Like, you've had all-stars. You've had potential Hall of Famers. You had the pitching ninja. And now me? Yeah, but you're a Syracuse
0: grad, and that means that you automatically come with this built-in, this like baked-in credential for <laughs> sports writing, and I don't know, I don't know what it is about Syracuse, but every great writer, reporter, sports center anchor, y'all went to Syracuse, right? Pretty much. How I mean, does that happen? What is it? What is it in, in the water up there?
1: It's nothing in the water. It's this chip that they take and implant in you. Oh, I, uh, I, I'm telling you, man. Oh, I just we need let to get that. Delete this podcast delete now. <laughs> This never happened, I never said anything, oh, Fight Club is not real
0: Yeah, rule number one about Syracuse, never talk about the chips <laughs> um, But you, I, the first the first time I met you, um, it was after I read your book, The Arm Which, by the way, congratulations
1: Thank you, I'm so glad you brought this up because I'm going to tell you something that Tell the story, but I'm going to tell you something afterward that I, I'm going to blush considerably it's a shameful moment, but go ahead.
0: Okay. Um, I met you in Boston. Um, we might've, we might've crossed paths before then, but that was the first time I felt like I really met you. But that was after I read your book, the arm, which New York times bestseller, probably one of the, one of the better and more well-known baseball books has been written in the past decade. I like to read, I don't read a ton. So the fact that I made it all the way through your book is kudos to you, but I'm super interested in how, writing a book comes about. Like if you go from sports writing or from sports reporting into basically novel, what is that process like? But we can go back to our
1: first our first meeting if you want to. I, I will get to all that because I love talking about that stuff. So this is after you guys clinch the pennant. I right. I believe yeah, yeah. Boston like, game four. Yep. There is champagne everywhere, and everyone's got this smile on their face, and everyone's wearing the same t shirt, right? Always, yeah. Yeah, because everyone, you're handed a t shirt. Give me the t shirt. Exactly. Give me the t shirt. I don't believe you were wearing goggles. I probably had them around my neck or my head because every time,
0: this is all right, this is the plight of the uh, successful. Every time we have a champagne shower, I forget to put the goggles on, (laughs) and I immediately get crushed in the face with with a bottle of champagne, not like in the face with the bottle, but somebody sprays it right in my eyes and just long enough for me to realize I don't have goggles on. Then I put them on and then there's fogs up. So you take them off and you just have to deal with it.
1: Yeah. I I have my own champagne shower story, but I feel like I'm getting to like the inception (laughs) of stories here where we're like two levels down. So I'm going to finish this one first. Come back up. Yeah. So up walks to me, Colin and He shakes my hand and he's like, are you Jeff Paston? I said, yeah. He's like, I just wanted to thank you for writing the arm. I read it. I really enjoyed it. I felt like I learned stuff from it. I appreciate you doing that. And here I am like thinking in the middle of this guy's like greatest moment, he has has the kindness and compassion to come up to me and tell me that he liked something I did that. No, I'm serious. I was like, that is the coolest thing ever. Then I walked up to Kevin Goldstein and I said, who the fuck was that? <laughs> Dude, I'm so sorry. It's fair. That's fair. I, That's I, fair. No, I was I just, just
0: about to say, I wasn't even on the roster that, that series. So I was basically in the background cheering and yelling.
1: Can I, can I, can I be honest? I was like, Please, this, this is, is l- what this podcast is all about. This honesty. is, this is like a, a young like handsome well put together guy i i really thought you were an analyst
0: you know what <laughs> it's not the first time i've been confused for an analyst <laughs> really dude and i i have held this shame for for 2 <laughs> years now we're getting it all out here this is therapy guys this, this, this is, is what we're doing this, that's what this podcast is for that's amazing it's my favorite when i go on i'm on the street and like somehow the fact that i'm in the baseball world comes up i try and Put it off for as long as possible to tell people that I actually play baseball. Of course, and have them guess what role I play in the baseball world. <laughs> baseball player is at least seven or eight on the list. Like, what's yeah.
1: what's at the forefront?
0: Um, anal. Yeah, like data analyst, coach. Um, somebody told somebody asked me if I uh, was a grounds crew person one day. <laughs> that it was because of the shirt I was wearing. A shirt that had a hole in it, and it was dirty. I'm 100% blaming the shirt and not. The body that I was given by God, um, of course. But, yeah, I don't come off as the uh, as your typical athlete. So, um, yeah, and everybody everybody in there is wearing the same shirt. We're all wearing goggles. Some of us around our necks. Some of us around our eyes. So. I don't blame you for it and I'm glad you got it off your chest.
1: Listen, honesty is the best policy, man. <laughs> like when you when you hold things in, it eats away at your heart. And every time I've seen you since we've always had like enjoyable conversations. Yep. I, I you're you are one of those players about whom I can talk. Anything, whether it's the game, or music, or pop culture, or labor and economics, or anything. And those are my favorite kinds of players, Good, but this has been like my deep dark secret and the fact that I've been able to let it out. I feel really good about that.
0: Good. Guys, welcome to uh, therapy with Jeff and Colin.
1: It's amazing. You can't see this, but I'm actually laying on a couch right now, and it's really uncomfortable.
0: Yeah, he's backwards, so he can't obviously see me, and I'm taking notes, um... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Jeff, let's jump into jump back into your book for a second. Yeah, it was a really great read. I thought it was I thought it was fun. I thought it was really informative. Like I told you before, it was <clears throat> one of those baseball books that if you enjoy baseball and if you care anything about the kind of the nuance about about it, chances are you're probably interested in it. Because mm-hmm. pitching health and pitchers, careers and longevity has always been, I don't know, kind of like this mythology around it for so long. So how did the book come about? How long did it take to write? All this all the stuff around it.
1: So this goes back to 2012, and my, you have a a newborn, and and you know what it's like to be in the throes of parenthood when you have a young child. Mm-hmm. Like it's almost this descent into madness. <laughs> yeah, like, <laughs> and and every day you're fighting fatigue. And just trying to make it to put your head on the pillow. Correct.
0: 15 minutes at a time, like, you know, power naps. Yeah.
1: Like, look, you know, you're looking at the, like, constantly looking at the clock. You're like a coach at the end of a game who just wants to bleed the clock out every day. (laughs) And my responsibility, I don't know if it was one particular night or you know, I, I, I barely remember those those first few months, but this was with my two-month-old child. I was going to get up with him for the middle of the night feeding that night. Right. And so I'm sitting in the rocking chair with him, and my eyes are like half-closing as I'm holding this like very fragile baby and and feeding him. And you have this like instinctual thing where you hold him tight even if you fall asleep there. Correct. yeah. But but your arm could go loose and limp at any time. So I'm trying to think of different things in my head to keep me at least somewhat reasonably. There's this
0: middle ground between consciousness and dead asleep exhaustion that you have to hold because you have to have some tension in that arm. Correct. Exactly.
1: I I love that middle ground too, because I feel like that middle ground has really fertile thoughts. (laughs) I'm serious. Like I have some, like, I think of some weird shit in that middle (laughs) ground. And I really enjoy Like, have you ever been conscious enough in that middle ground to recognize what your brain is processing but unconscious enough not to wake up from it yep i love that feeling Mm -hmm. it's like it's like that place where where you can see this amazing castle and like jump and land on top of it and (laughs) feel like you're going there and like it's actually real Uh, but in the back of your mind you're like this is not real but it's still super cool so i was video
0: game world yes exactly (laughs)
1: So I was in that place, and earlier, uh, over the previous two or three days, I had been talking with Dan Duquette, who was the GM of the Orioles at the time, and Alex Anthopoulos, who was the GM of the Blue Jays at the time. And Dan had a young pitcher named Dylan Bundy. Yep. And uh, Alex had three young pitchers named Aaron Sanchez, Justin Nicolino, and Noah Syndergaard. There you go. And Dylan Bundy who had thrown, like, 200 pitches in a game in high school.
0: Yeah, he's, like, legendary,
1: right? Yes. I mean, him and Archie Bradley would have, like, these duels in Oklahoma. In the and, hot sun of Oklahoma. It's exactly right, where they would just go out and and nuke their arms. And Dylan Bundy was being limited that time to, like, two innings per start. And Sanchez and Nicolino and Syndergaard, same thing. And when I talked with Dan Duquette, and especially Alex... Alex said something to me that really was the seed for this book. I said, why are you doing this? And he said, I don't know. <laughs> and and I I have always appreciated Alex's honesty because he's not one of those people who's gonna make up an excuse to rationalize something that he's doing. Right. He will come out and be honest about it. And, and I was like, you don't know. And I'm like, if Alex Anthopoulos, who's a, a very thoughtful- rational person who is in charge of one of these 30 teams yeah does not know and is doing things by throwing a dart at a (laughs) dartboard that has like you know it's like one through nine around the dartboard and how many innings a guy goes is where the dart hits on that particular night if that's how things are being done in major league baseball what does that say about this sport that prides itself as much as it does on efficiency It says that it's totally guessing with this stuff. And if after 150 years of playing this game, we're still guessing, why? That's, That's what I wanted to answer. So I'm sitting there and, and feeding this kid and my mind is going and I have like different chapters that I'm thinking of, okay, we could do this. We could start here. Uh, you know, I could go and look at the history. I could do a whole chapter on Nolan Ryan. I could do something on Tim Linscombe. I mean, I, I have these thoughts bouncing around in my head and it just comes to that aha moment where I'm like, this is not a story. This is a book. Yeah. And, and I have been looking for a book to write for a really long time. Because I had I had done one called "Death to the BCS" right with Dan Wetzel and Josh Peter, who were mm-hmm. colleagues of mine at Yahoo Sports at the time, and it was a fulfilling thing. It was an enjoyable thing, but it wasn't my own. Right, you know, I was drafting on their idea, it was collaborating, in their report, yeah. yeah, and and it was great to do that. But I wanted to try something by myself just to see if I could do it. Like that's the you know. <laughs> I know what that feels like. You do know yeah. what that feels like. It is it is a lonely and harrowing and so unbelievably fulfilling feeling. And and that's like, those are the two poles of it. Like you can feel like you are just bashing your head against the wall constantly. But when you figure it out, there's, there's no greater feeling in the world.
0: Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, that's all incredibly true. I, there's... I guess there's no substitute for, I want to I want to call it success because at the end of the day the book was a resounding success. But did you know it as you were writing it? Did you know that this is this yeah, is I, good?
1: I, yeah, I knew I had the goods. This is good. Yeah. You know what? It's not just like I knew the material was good. Mm-hmm. I did not know if how I presented it was good. That's right. all. That's always my that's my bugaboo. Mm-hmm. Like I feel like I can find information. I feel like people trust me and can talk honestly with me. I feel like I see details that most people don't see. I feel like I can make connections of all of those things into a salient point. Yeah. It's the storytelling that always makes me wonder, am I putting this in the right order? Am I telling this the right way? Yeah. Am I drawing readers along with me? (laughs) Am I giving them enough to continue on, you know, chapter to chapter, paragraph to paragraph, word to word? Yeah. That's always the fight. Like, I don't know if you – I'm sure you didn't see it because you were just getting started on your season. But have you heard about Luke Haggerty? I have not. So this was the first big story I wrote for, for ESPN. And Luke Haggerty was drafted by the Cubs first round in 2002. Blows out in 2003. Comes back in 2005, can't throw the ball over the plate. Full-blown yips. Oh, yeah. Like nasty, nasty, Oh, that's a bad
0: feeling. Oh, We've all been there a little bit, but the full-blown yips.
1: I'm talking full-blown like to the point where when he's playing catch before a game, he's worried he's going to hit the hot dog vendor. Yep. And walk 30 in six and two-thirds innings.
0: That hurts me just thinking
1: about it. Yeah, it does because you like— Gives you some anxiety. You know what it's like standing out on that mound and and being the only person out there. I always
0: tell I tell people the first the first inning of a game, I never know if I'm gonna throw a strike until I throw a strike. (laughs) I never do. You're standing on the mound and you're like, I have to throw a strike. I know if I don't throw a strike, I'm never gonna get out of this game. So I gotta throw strike one. And until you throw strike one, you go like 3-0 on the first hitter. Just the beads of sweat, the the cold sweat starts creeping over your whole body. But yeah, so throwing strikes is an underrated skill. But yeah,
1: so he's back. Can't throw a strike. You know, Cubs try to work with him. Nothing, nothing much comes of it. It's one of those things we don't know how to solve. It's like arm injuries. Mm-hmm. How do you solve the yips? How do you how do you solve it when the physical manifests itself mentally? Yeah. And then the two get intertwined in this like cancerous ball. Mm -hmm. And if you remove one, the other goes away too. So if the mental stuff is, you know, if the mental stuff, if you try and take it away, the physical stuff's gonna follow along with it. You have to unwind the two before you do. And that's a really difficult thing. And so he's done, you know? Man. Done in 2007 plays a little bit of indie ball, can't throw a strike there either. And, you know, meets a girl, goes back to school. He had, uh, he had gone to Ball State and goes back to school and gets his, uh, gets his degree and gets his CSCS. So becomes a certified strength and conditioning specialist and opens up a gym in the Scottsdale area. And, it's tough. He wanted to get away from baseball. Yeah. Because why wouldn't you? After that, yeah. I would. I mean, this was something that, that you, it was supposed to be your life and, and it just got taken away and you can't process why. And so he knows what he knows, starts training baseball players. And this is early in the 2010s and he had thrown, but he went to this high school, Defiance High School in Ohio. And his coach there, they've turned out Chad Billingsley, John Neese, like oh the, yeah, their coaches had like ninety. This little small town in Ohio, nineteen straight years with a kid who throws ninety plus. They're doing something right. They're throwing weighted balls, and this coach was throwing weighted balls going back like twenty five years. Except it was a softball, a baseball, and a tennis ball.
0: Oh as yeah. opposed
1: to like the drive line stuff that you see these. Well, days. it's the old school drive
0: line right there. It's it, like the the kid goes up and gets it's like, what, picks up whatever balls in the garage. It's like the,
1: it's like Mike Marshall. Like that's the stuff that Mike Marshall was doing in oh, Zephyr yeah. Hills, Florida, you know, for like- In the jungle down there. Exactly. <laughs> Have you been to Zephyr Hills before? I've
0: seen videos and it looks, um, honestly, it
1: looks terrifying. It, it looks it like is. something out of a horror movie. It looks like something that you would see in like one of the final episodes of a true detective season. A hundred percent. Yes. Like Carcosa <laughs> lives in Zephyr Hills. <laughs> so, so Luke, you know, he, he gets this idea that I I keep reading this stuff about weighted balls. I used it myself, but I don't like the idea of throwing a softball. I wonder who has four ounce balls and six ounce balls. And so he goes onto the internet and he sees his driveline has these. So he orders a set and he's like, there's no research out there. No definitive research on weighted balls. I'm not gonna give it to kids without there being research. I'm gonna try myself and see if it works. So he picks up balls and starts throwing again. And you know, arm doesn't hurt. He's getting a little bit of velocity. You know, he's around like mid to high 80s. Starts ticking up a bit. And and this sends him down this like rabbit hole of information. Yeah. Like you want to learn. Like, I I know this is your podcast, but I'm going to ask you a question. When's the first time you heard the word spin rate?
0: Oh, man. Um, It was in the Fall League in 2011. Okay. And I... Was getting knocked around in the fall league. I mean, and by getting knocked knocked around is a tame way of saying it. I was getting absolutely crushed. <laughs> and it's Arizona, and it's hot, and the ball is flying, mm-hmm. and I'm just I can't get out. And my pitching coach at the time came to me and showed me this huge packet. And that was right when TrackMan had started becoming a thing.
1: And you were with the Mets then, right? I was, I was with the Mets. Yeah. Okay.
0: And uh, he f- started flipping through these pages of this packet. I'm like, what is this stuff? And he gets to this line, he highlighted my name and this number next to it. And it was 2,400 and something. I was like, what does that mean? And he looked at it and he said, this is your RPMs. He didn't call it spinner. He said, this is the RPMs of your curveball. And he compared that to, like, the top five guys in Major League Baseball. Mm -hmm. And I was, like, right there, right there close to it. And so when I saw my name next to, like, Clayton Kershaw – that's the. This is the only time me and Clayton Kershaw can be in the same conversation
1: together. Uh, Clayton Kershaw was actually angry that TrackMan was invented because your name was next to uh-huh, his. Right,
0: one hundred percent. He, um, <laughs> yeah, he still he still doesn't like it. We still won't talk to me. But I saw it and I was like, okay, what does this mean? And he said, it means you spin it really fast and you look next to that number and you see your OPS against that against mm-hmm. your curveball versus your piece against every other pitch. Mm-hmm. And it was way lower. He said, so, ipso facto, throw more curveballs. Throw balls. the curves. Yeah. And that was the first time I'd ever thought about uh, an analytic of a specific pitch being of any interest to me.
1: But then, I'm sure you're like, feed me more.
0: Well, once it starts working, obviously, you, Exa- you,
1: success breeds curiosity. Well, Luke Haggerty had success with the weighted ball, so he's like, okay, what else, what am I missing? What are, what can I teach these kids? And so, you know, he starts getting into, you know, throwing pull downs and long toss and all of the things that work in terms of growing velo. Building velocity, yeah. Because for the longest time, I think baseball believed you were born with a certain number of miles per hour in your arm. True. You cannot improve more than maybe one or two upon that once you reach your physical maturation. So Luke, you know, Luke is testing himself. He's guinea pigging on all of these different things. Starts throwing a little harder and he starts throwing a little harder. And suddenly some of these kids who started with him as teenagers and are now pitching in college and even in the minor leagues are looking at him saying, you're throwing better than I am. Yeah. Like, why are you not coming back? But he had kids and he was in his 30s and he had this business that he was trying to grow. Yeah, And also it's really scary <laughs> when you've lost your career one time because you couldn't throw a ball over the plate Yeah, to come to terms with the idea of doing it again. You know too much. Exactly. Like vulnerability is a really difficult human emotion. It, like to and and to put yourself out there like that, especially when, you know, Luke was Luke was raised in a in a household where, it's not that failure wasn't an option. Failure obviously is an option for everyone. It's that failure wasn't accepted. It wasn't tolerated. Yeah. yeah if you fail, figure it out. Mm-hmm. And and it wasn't said in like a, a mean way or a wrong way. It was said to teach you a lesson that perseverance is the most important quality that someone can have.
0: Winners never quit. That's exactly
1: right. (laughs) And so he's, you know, he's, he's trying to figure out, is it the right time? Is it the right time? When's the right time? How do I do this? And he met with a sports psychologist, um, who, uh, her name is Debbie Cruz. And she, and she wanted to get a, a sample of baseball players to take this, this test that she has. And Luke was one of them. And, in terms of competitiveness he scored really well and in terms of thoughtfulness and empathy and you know a lot of a lot of these things that you that you need i think to be successful but it was fear where his fear factor was so much higher than everybody else's cuz that thing doesn't go away man no it never goes it never goes away you it, just yeah. you can maybe figure out how to stifle it. Sometimes
0: it hibernates until you get in the right situation. <laughs> yeah, no, it's like,
1: honestly, it is like an autoimmune disease. Yeah. It is ever lurking inside of you. And and Debbie, and, and I'm, I'm not trying to oversell her role in this because she was sort of at the end, mm-hmm. but, but she said to him, you know, you got to take the leap at some point. And that got the bug in his head after others. You know, his wife, she wasn't, really pushing him too much because she saw that he was happy teaching these kids and and doing these experiments on himself. And he would come home after a good day and tell her about it. She'd be like, hey, I'm really proud. Mm -hmm. But she she wouldn't say, well, what what are you going to do? Finally, he's like, I'm going to give myself six months. Driveline has a pro day in February of 2019. I'm going to go there. There are going to be scouts there. I'm going to throw for teams. And you know what? They will be the judge. Yeah. So he, he, you know, building up velo, getting ready for this pro day, goes up there. Like he, he realizes this is my last shot, gets on the mound and from the left side sits 97. Goodness gracious. With, uh, with a pretty vicious slider, a couple of bad ones. He's not throwing a lot of strikes, Well, but 97 with a slider and he's got a curve and a change too. That plays. And... Two weeks later, at 37 years old, signs a minor league deal to go back with the Chicago Cubs (laughs) because he felt like he hadn't finished his job the first time he was there.
0: That is an awesome story. It's a great
1: story. God, I I love stories like that. And all of this goes back to the fact that when I found all of this out, I sat there and I said, Jeff, don't screw this up. (laughs) Like like that, that is my feeling about it. Like it's so good. I don't want to screw up a great story like that because I know that, you know, I know that I have it. I know that it can be great. And, and there's just that doubt in your head sometimes. Like if you have, if you have this diamond, this beautiful, like raw diamond in the process of cleaning it up you don't want to accidentally break it into 500 pieces right you you want to polish it you want to shape it you want to you want to do right by this great thing you have yeah and i think i did right by him and i felt the same way about the book in the end you Good. know i had i had all this this great stuff and i felt like i i did it justice and and served it well yeah
0: that's i mean it's a great story it's it was a great book. If you haven't read it out there, go pick it up, read it. Uh if you need a copy, I have a copy. So come find me. I'll let you, I'll lend you mine.
1: I am happy to uh if you if you subscribe all new subscribers, uh, I will get a signed copy to Colin that wow. we can send to you.
0: You heard it here first, guys.
1: We will incentivize the subscription. I see oh. I also see the the 5.0 rating on, on hey. iTunes.
0: Incentive is, is an interesting word because it is something that we've been talking about a lot, me and you, mm-hmm. me and players, me and everybody that around baseball that I can think of. And incentives are, in my opinion, what's kind of driving baseball today. I want to ask you an overarching question that you can answer however you want, and then we can get into the meat of it. But what is the state of sports, in ba- or what is the state of baseball today?
1: I think the state of baseball is bifurcated right
0: now. Explain bifurcated for us who did not graduate from Syracuse.
1: Bifurcated is, is divided into two distinctly separate things. Got you. Okay. On one hand, I think the quality of the players and of the play is better than it has ever been and by a pretty reasonable margin. Yeah. I think that the stuff pitchers are throwing is better than it's ever been. I think the ability of hitters to hit incredible pitches is better than it's ever been. I think the athleticism is better than it's ever been. Uh, I think the, the just the knowledge in the game has made players better. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, I think the knowledge has made everything around the game worse.
0: I think a lot of people would agree with you.
1: And and I'm not I'm not going to sit here and, and blame analytics for the economic discord. And I think that's probably a reasonable way to put it right now. And look, in every relationship, whether it is marital, whether it's a friend, whether it's parent and child, or whether it's between business partners, there's going to be moments where, where things are not right. It's why I'm not the person who's jumping to... OMG, there's going to be a strike in 2021 right, yet. Right, right, right. Guys, there's two and a half years left. It's a lot of time. It's a lot of time to repair things mm-hmm. and and to figure it out. But where we are in terms of the way that the players view the league and the league views the players right now, I think is at a really precarious point. Mm-hmm. And above all of that, like the the thing that, and, and I think I told you this yesterday, I don't know if did, did I make the Game of Thrones comparison for you? Yeah, Yo,
0: we talked about it. I'm a Game of Thrones fan, so yes, yes. we. I, I like this. I like this, but tell us,
1: Game of Thrones fans, the War of the Five Kings, which you know we lost. R.I.P. Lots of people. R.I.P. I'm not, Everyone. I'm not. Yeah, I'm not gonna. <laughs> I'm not gonna
0: spoil it too much, but like, it, if you haven't seen it by now, you probably deserve to have it spoiled. You but know what? Go though, back and I watch feel it, like people. I
1: feel like people are also gonna maybe possibly catch up. It's so you need e- to. Yeah, it's so easy. Like I watched, I'm glad my wife's not listening to this because I watched the last three episodes of True Detective last night. There you on, go on my computer in my hotel room. <laughs> and like you can watch anything anywhere right now. It's awesome. Um, but but the War of the Five Kings is is you know the idea that somebody needs to rule Westeros and 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 it's more that they're fighting one another. These humans without the an existential threat that is looming over them, like literally on top of them. If you go <laughs> on top of the map of Westeros and you see an army of the dead marching down, it is literally like coming down on the top of their head. And I feel like the thing that is coming down on top of baseball's head right now is, is the demographic problem where fans, the average baseball fan is getting older. And there's a generation of baseball fans right now, or excuse me, a generation of kids right now that baseball's losing, mm-hmm. and and I think that is a problem. And and I was I was talking with our mutual friend Sean Doolittle earlier today. That yeah. was over in just across the way, just across in, the hallway. In the yeah, exactly, <laughs> it, it's a little hot outside, and I'm wearing a suit, so it wasn't quite across yeah, the hallway. Thank you for
0: dressing up for me. I, I appreciate that.
1: I listen all for you, all for the all for the podcast. Um. And you know, we we were we were talking about just how how this matters. Like baseball baseball has a problem when it comes to how old its fans are. Right. And and when it comes to how it engages with its fans. And he, you know, Sean was saying the Astros do a really good job. Collins podcast. Alex Bregman's YouTube channel, Lance McCullers going on Twitch. Yep. You know, these are, and I know you're not doing it to, to save baseball. You know, I try to hide my cape when I'm not, <laughs> uh, when I'm
0: having the podcast, but yeah. So when, you,
1: when you're when you going to dunk and hang on the rim with your elbow, you're not yeah. opening the shirt that says Superman on we'll it? No,
0: we'll see what happens during the season this year. That's what <laughs> I'm gonna do after strikeouts. <laughs> uh,
1: but but you guys, and and I don't know if I, I assume it's, mostly individual driven as opposed to organizationally driven. Mm -hmm. But, but the fact that you guys engage how you do, I think is a roadmap for what baseball can and should be doing with more players. And, and I'm curious, like inside of clubhouses, there, there's almost this paradigm where individuality gets, doesn't get knocked out of you, but I, is it discouraged? Is that a a fair way to put it? I think— And not not individuality so much as something that could bring attention to yourself.
0: Yeah, there is a collective feeling, and I think it's it's a baseball tradition, right? So it's a baseball tradition that says you are not the most important thing, and it is ingrained into you from the second you get into pro ball from the minor leagues all the way through the minor leagues. I mean, it is drilled into you in the minor leagues because— you're, you're nobody, down you're there. nothing, you're 100% a commodity,
1: you're nothing, you're making 300 you're making bucks nothing, every yeah. two weeks, True. like you're eating like crap, you're sleeping six people to an apartment, yeah, you know, you get to these dingy clubhouses. Like, if that doesn't teach you that you're nothing, what yeah.
0: will it's made for? It's made to weed people out, it's not made to get you there. It's made, and somebody I forget who I was talking to, I was talking to Garrett on the last podcast, and we were talking about the minors. The minors is not made for you to get to the big leagues. It's made for you to not get to the big leagues. And if you That's get past it. that, uh-huh. then you get a chance to do what we do and play this game for a living and um it's it's amazing. But I wrote a blog during the minor leagues because I was I wanted to remember this stuff because it's almost like PTSD like it's you try to black it out as soon as you get past it, you try and like forget about it. And I think part of the reason that we're getting off topic a little bit, but
1: no this is actually firmly on topic oh, i believe because right. this because this i think the treatment of players and i'm not going to say like a lack of respect for players i think that i think the league does respect you guys mm-hmm. i don't think the league values you guys enough yeah i think everybody in baseball says the game is bigger than anyone
0: right than any one player
1: but the collective players are bigger than the game
0: that you know that's don't tell Bill James that, but yes, it is. When,
1: when the pl- <laughs> if and when the players go away, the game is not good.
0: No, yeah, we it, saw that a little bit in '94, '95, but yeah,
1: that's what I hope MLB recognizes, and that's also what I hope the players recognize. Like there needs to be a, an extreme amount of unanimity on both sides. Mm-hmm. And I think in the past, where the MLBPA was at its strongest is that it brought all the players together. Right, right. And on the other hand, you had owners who felt like they were putting too much into the kitty and revenue sharing, who felt like they couldn't win as small markets. You had just this divided ownership. You had people from different industries who didn't recognize the power of collective thinking. Well, it was competition. It was pure... At the end of the day, it
0: was pure competition between businesses. Mm -hmm. On the field, we compete. We compete every day. But there was this other level of competition that you never saw. It was way above the game itself and it was the people on top of the game that had to compete with each other. And like you're saying, there is a collective thinking that goes into... Making more efficient decisions, right?
1: Uh, yes, and that sounds like the C word. Uh, nobody is saying the C word no. on this podcast. Yes, <laughs> nobody is saying nobody is saying that, and and I'm not saying that either because that is that is a very loaded term. Mm-hmm. And if the MLBPA is going to take that step, it should do so judiciously. Mm-hmm. But I will say, interestingly, it, back in the in collusion one, particularly, have you read Lords of the Realm by John Hellier? I haven't yet. Mm-mm. You need to get that book. Okay, it's on the list. It, it that should be the first book you like. What's number one on your list right now? Oh, I'm, uh, I'm like three
0: quarters of the way through the game. Okay, and it's pushing me in that direction. So, Lords of the or, Lord of the Realm is it? Lords of the Realm. Lords of the Realm. Lords of the Realm.
1: That's it, next. It's. For my money, it's the best baseball book that's ever been written. Okay, and it's essentially about the creation of the MLBPA. They should they should make copies and give them out to every player. <laughs> uh, no, I'm dead serious. Yeah, because I don't think players understand. I think the reason one of the reasons that today the union is in a lot of ways like the owners were back then, and the owners today. Are in a lot of ways like the union was back yeah. then. Is because the history just is. It, it's it's not that it's not known. It's that it's a difficult thing to contextualize. Yeah, like to understand where where the sport is right now. You've had an entire two generations of players come through in labor peace. Yeah. Like, think about it. We're, uh, we're 25, 25
0: years. 25 years out yeah. from any sort of uh, labor conflict. And, I mean, that's, I was, I don't even know how old was I. I was seven at that point. Yeah. So, like, I barely remember what that was like. Um, people who are older than me remember it being bad. But the you talk to the players from that generation, and they're like, you guys don't understand what that was like.
1: Yeah. And, and they're right. And, and how could you? I mean, yeah. the the average salary back in 1994, you know, I think, I'm trying to think who had the biggest contract back then. I think it was Maddox signed in 93 for like five years and 38 million. With the Braves? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think Bond signed in San Francisco for like six years and 40 million. Yeah. I remember looking at those numbers and saying, even
0: putting putting them into today's dollars, you're like, that's not. Is not the same ballpark we're playing in. No,
1: it's really not. It's really not.
0: And so this labor piece has it's a good thing. It has created some incredible profits, some incredible stability yep. in the game, which as I like we said, I think the game is in a great spot from a raw
1: product and, perspective. And that is that is what gets me back to my original point here. People are making money. And and I understand why players are dubious right now. I get it. Because free agency has changed and it has changed in players' eyes, not for the better. Right. I also think, and I think I might've said this to you yesterday, I also think that the inevitability of this was not clear because if it were clear, you know, I, I didn't see it, the floor falling out right. like this. But it was clear if you looked at it from the perspective of math always wins
0: <laughs> Trevor Bauer <laughs> we talked about it math always wins yeah.
1: math, uh, Trevor Trevor likes to say the math always wins and the math is winning here and and it's a it's a hard pill to swallow for players mm-hmm. because there there is I think the the <laughs> toughest part of this next labor negotiation is going to be guys who right now are 27 28 and 29. Yeah, because then when this when when the the current deal expires, they're going to be 30, 31, and thirty two, right? And they're going to have spent the first six or seven years of their career with their salaries deflated,
0: artificially deflated,
1: yeah. artificially deflated.
0: You wrote a great piece about ar- about arbitration, and that's a probably little known uh, little known part of the game, part of contract negotiations, part of labor. Um, but it's it's one of those things that is incredibly important, but it flies under the radar for so many people. Did you bring it up just to humble brag? <sighs> well, you know, I have read a couple things. I read a book. Colin McHugh, while.
1: if you guys didn't know, is one of, I believe, three or four players maybe to go to arbitration twice and win.
0: Not many. Yeah, not many have done it. Not, just...
1: ma- not many go once because right. they're scared of the process. It's not a fun process. Because you sit in a room with a bunch of lawyers who tell you how bad you are.
0: Oh, yeah. It's your worst nightmare that is a very real thing. Like, you have to you. be a
1: very secure human being to sit through an arbitration hearing. I <laughs> and remember, to do yeah. it twice, you have to be a masochist. I was telling
0: guys this year, you know, thankfully, we didn't have to go to arbitration this year. We were able, able to settle. Um, but I was telling guys who, who were going to end up being in the room, what I learned after my second time going through was they're not going to tell you anything that you haven't thought about yourself a hundred times <laughs> on your worst day. So just go into it knowing that like, this is going to be like one of your bad days. It's like you just had a bad start or you just went over eight. So don't worry about it. You'll get past it. You'll move on. But
1: yeah, it's the not intellectual it's not, it's not exercise has to be fascinating. Though. Yeah. Okay. Yay or nay. Televise arbitration hearings. Oh man,
0: I think everybody should have to sit into one. I think everybody should have to. Do you understand think people it. would enjoy watching it? Uh, it depends. I don't know what your average baseball fan is. Anymore. I
1: mean, if you put it on like court TV,
0: yeah, nobody's like nobody's watching. Well, I can't say nobody. How many people watched the O.J. Simpson trial? That was a zillion people. But I don't know. There might be something intriguing for the average person about seeing, uh, you know, Garrett Cole versus the NLR.
1: I, I, like. <laughs> I, I'm telling you, there is there is somebody in the baseball industry who constantly pushes me to advocate for putting arbitration hearings on TV. He's like, it would be great content. And it would be, you know, it would be transparency. It would be showing it people is, yeah. like it would be showing people what they don't see. Yeah. It's almost like the the excitement of a trial. Yeah. And I think players would would not be down with it because, like, you have... So, the way that an arbitration hearing works is that there is an argument for each side that goes an hour. So, player goes first, right? You get your hour. Yep. You get your hour. And, you know, sometimes... That, that's a case that's been worked on for, for weeks. And Muts, sometimes probably. more, yeah. yeah. It, you know, you sort of like start off beforehand because you don't know when you exchange Correct. numbers where they're going to be. And you don't want to spend too much time working on that beforehand. But you have to work on it a lot because in arbitration, it, it's a comp-based system. It's a comp-based system. And there's
0: a tiny window for negotiation, especially now.
1: Yes, uh, because they they know better mm-hmm. like you you do, the whole system is set up so you don't go to a hearing it's it
0: was supposed to be that way yes well yeah
1: that is, <laughs> <laughs> idealistically it's that way and so you have all this time that you're working on it and the player gets an hour argument the club gets an hour argument and these arguments are printed out essentially like you've got the the information that's going to be used and they're exchanged At the beginning, and a group of people from each side then go huddle in like a hotel suite because there's thirty minute rebuttals. Oh, they go just after a break. Crazy research. It's it's like that's where I want to be. I want to be in the. I want to be in the rebuttal room someday just to see the way that people are processing arguments. Cause the, you know, as, as I've gotten older, like I've, I've learned to really appreciate people who can think logically on their feet and who can find flaws in arguments. I imagine it is the same thing when you get that aha moment and you see a hitter has a weakness that he doesn't know. Oh yeah. And you know, you're just going to exploit him
0: if you execute. It's great. Yeah. It really, really is. But yeah, that, that team that goes back is like the best debate team you've ever seen. Yes, that's exactly what
1: it is. That's exactly what it is. They're a great debate team because they're they're finding weaknesses in these arguments, and not just finding weaknesses, but but they're anticipating. In the best ones, will anticipate what's going to happen and what's going to come mm-hmm. from the other side. And and that's I think that's where you win cases. Yeah, in you, the rebuttal, you get
0: your thirty minute rebuttal. They get their thirty minute rebuttal, and then every once in a while, you get a. Maybe a two-minute sir rebuttal, which has happened in both of my cases. So, yeah. Yeah. They've been heated exchanges. So, yeah, they get going. Contentious. And, I love yeah. it. But, you know, I think it's it's an incredibly important part of the process that gets overlooked a lot of times because you're starting you're, – the goal is to move the needle a little bit. A yes. little bit here and there. And essentially, you don't want to talk about floors and ceilings, but essentially move the floor up over and over and over again for these players in their prime. And
1: that's why – the Aaron Nola and Luis Severino extensions were as interesting as they were.
0: Yeah, you're buying out those years, right?
1: No, it's not just that. But when you're moving the needle ever so slightly, the way that it's looked at is uh, you can go to arbitration up to four times. Right. If what's called super twos, that's the top like 20% of players in a particular service class. And the record, do you know who has the record for first-time eligible non-special players. And by special, I mean Dallas Keuchel won a Cy Young. Right. And he was first-time eligible. Like, when you win awards, you're sort of considered in a different category. No, who is it? Dontrell Willis.
0: Dontrell, that still is, doing it. That
1: is how long it's been yeah. since somebody has moved the first-time eligible ceiling. Wow. And so Nola and Severino both, both had the opportunity to do that. and they took extensions, and yep. and here's the thing, I, I I'm probably in the minority here, at least among people in the baseball industry. I think the general consensus is extensions like that are best for the club, right? Typically, yeah. Typically, I've seen too many arms go and and go badly, right? To ever fault a pitcher,
0: oh, I will. I always tell people I'll never tell somebody to turn down money that's on the table. And not to say that there is a right decision and a wrong decision because everybody has their own motives mm-hmm. for taking what they're going to take. But when you put a contract and you say this is $40 million guaranteed on a table in front of anybody for any reason, I am not far enough removed from average Joe on the street to say, turn that down.
1: So, So Luis Severino was not a July 2nd kid. Yeah, you know all the best Latin American kids go July second. Luis Severino was not a July second kid. He ended up getting two hundred twenty-five thousand dollars, yep. which is which is a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Luis Severino also is like twenty-four years old now, so and and he's made five hundred thousand, which again a lot of money for yeah. for the last couple of years. But when you're a kid from the Dominican Republic, who never was highly touted who throws 98 and, Mm -hmm. and knows that there's a very strong correlation between velocity and arm injuries. Yep. You're, you're, you're just, you're spending a lot of money on insurance there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like that's a contract extension. I almost feel like is an insurance policy.
0: It's a good way of looking at it. Yeah. But the, the hard the hard part of it is on the other side of that, they're, there's a trend. There's a trend that you want to continue to be pushing up. Or totally. Not pushing up, but you want to continue the percentage of player revenue to team revenue to be the same. You want uh-huh. it to be connected and closely connected. And I think in the last few years, we're starting to see team revenues start uh-huh. to ramp up a little bit, and we're maybe seeing a little plat- a plateau of of player revenue. And that is, for players in general, that is a startling and disconcerting thing.
1: Yeah, and and we we talked about vulnerability earlier and I'm yeah. going to ask you to to be vulnerable here. You're a free agent after this year. Yeah,
0: this is my last year before free you're agency. You're a
1: free agent after this year. You're going to be 32.
0: Mhm. Are you scared of free agency? You know, free agency used to be it used to be this like shiny thing at the end of your uh, at the end of your six dude, years, dude, it
1: was the castle that I jumped up in in my dream. Saying. Like yeah. that's that's exactly where you, it was. I remember, Valhalla.
0: I remember being in Port St. Lucie, a rookie with the Mets, thinking if I ever make it to free agency, it will be this like shining city on a hill, <laughs> and we will it will be it will just be everything for me because you have no ability to control anything, really any anything outside of your salary number for your entire baseball career. So I've been playing pro ball for, this is my 11th season. And not once have I gone into a season being able to decide where I go. Decide when I show up, decide who I show up to, decide how much I make. It has always been decided for me, Mm -hmm. including in arbitration. This was the first year I settled. So I actually got to decide, yes, I will take that number or no, I will not take that number. So free agency is that first, it really is freedom. It is the ability to control your own destiny. And before last year, Really, before last year, it was this—it uh, was just this great thing out in out at the end of year number six that everybody wanted to get to. And if you got to it, you get that one. I knew I was an older guy. I knew I was going to be, you know, thirty-one, thirty-two when I get free agency. Maybe you got one bite at the apple, mm-hmm. and that one bite at the apple—that was going to be your thing, though. You could almost guarantee it. It was going to be out there, and if you did well, and if you put up the numbers, you were going to get a contract. And it's not there anymore. No. And it's terrifying
1: a little bit. It it should be. Because even if you come out and you make 33 starts this year and you throw 180 to 200 innings and you shove, you're still a 32-year-old starting pitcher.
0: Yeah, you're still a 32-year-old starting pitcher. Every team is going to have – I made a tweet a a while ago that I think some people probably – didn't respond to very well, but I probably didn't phrase it very well. It was about analytics.
1: I, that happens, and I have that feeling. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm terrible on Twitter. Uh,
0: it was about Marwin, but it was a joke about analytics departments saying like, eh, you're not really what we need, even though he can do everything. <laughs> um, but it is, the, it is the case that every team will find, if they don't want you, they will find a way to make
1: you take that, as that's, little value that's, from you as possible. That's, that's happened with Bryce Harper and Manny Machado this yeah. offseason like two of the uh, am i am i too high when i say 20 best players in baseball is it two of the 15 best like two I, of the I put 10? them
0: i put them at their at their best they're both top 10 players easily yes at their
1: best they're both top 10 players. Where they
0: are right now uh, easily top 20 yeah and uh, including their age yeah,
1: yeah exactly. potential and let's put it this way there are enough excuses being made about them that we're recording this on February 17th. Yeah, it's the 18th and they still don't have jobs.
0: And they don't have jobs yet. We're a week into spring training.
1: And and that that's the most alarming part of all of this. You know, I did a story last year, and I think it was the first, I think it was the first really sort of deep dive that anyone had written about the state of affairs with baseball economics. And and it was scary to me because this sport should be thriving. It should be, right? Yeah. So we talked this, about it at the beginning. This, this sport should be thriving in so many ways. And I feel like on one side, the club's desires to be efficient and to get quote unquote value are are usurping their responsibility to grow the game. Yeah, And on the other side, I feel like players fear over the way clubs are operating right now and their desire to win short-term and gain back what they feel like they've lost are again doing the same things that clubs are. And so all of this is having this poisonous effect on the relationship when in reality, this is a relationship that is best served with both sides operating as partners, not adversaries. 100%. And and I and I understand the the desire of of Tony Clark and of others at the union not to trust MLB. Because in the past, MLB has been duplicitous.
0: They've proved
1: untrustworthy. That's at times. exactly right. Yeah. I mean collusion literally happened. Fe- they, like
0: actual cases legal cases yes
1: yes yes. multiple legal cases with enormous amounts of damages correct and yet there needs to be that partnership for everybody to gain what they need and what the sport needs and that is where the emphasis needs to be
0: there is an army of the dead coming from the north
1: there that's (laughs) there is there is and and it is demographics mm-hmm. and demographics will come and hit you like a nuclear bomb yep. and they and they will make they will make things irrelevant think about think about in the business world the way that that demographics make things irrelevant think about radio shack it never yep. adjusted its business to to cater to younger people right Think about just big box stores in general when online shopping became easier and more convenient. They did not adjust and they're dying now. Right. Adjust or die.
0: Yeah. I think uh, baseball tends to have this, this like Superman complex where it will save everything. It's big enough to do everything and it will save everything because it's baseball. It's America's pastime. Yeah. But we were talking about it. If it, if it no longer is a pastime, if it's just a, an amusement park that you go to once a summer. Yeah, that's not sustainable. That doesn't that doesn't make for uh, a a good next hundred years of baseball.
1: You know, I hate this conversation because I feel like I'm I'm like the doomsday clock. We're Debbie sometimes. Downers right now. I know. I know. I but I I also feel like it's an important conversation to have. Right. Because I think it's it's important for fans to understand that you know as much as players are are the sport. Fans are are the lifeblood. They, 100%. they are they are what sustain baseball, and baseball needs to figure out. And and by baseball, I don't just mean Central baseball. Mm-hmm. I mean the players. Baseball is a collective owners, whole. Exactly, yeah. they need to figure out how to sell this game better. You're gonna have your diehards, like people. I will love baseball no matter what. Right. Just because I, I love baseball.
0: Same. I'm a fan. I've been a fan my whole life. Yeah. yeah.
1: There are fewer and fewer of those. Yeah. There are fans of teams. They're not fans of the sport, though. Right. And, and I think in the NFL, you've got a lot of fans of teams, but a lot of fans of the sport. Mm-hmm. And I think in the NBA, we're almost getting to the point where you have fans of players. Yeah. Like I have taken such an interest in the NBA this off because I feel like the NBA, in a lot of ways, does things right.
0: They do a lot of things, a lot. I think a lot. You're right. A lot of things better than uh, better than everybody else does.
1: Yeah, and they're thinking differently. They are, and and you know what? The it's a player's league.
0: Yeah, right now it is for sure.
1: Yeah, and I think that the NBA, uh, the the NBA central office recognizes that players sell this game.
0: It's not a bad thing, right? Yeah. It's
1: not. And there needs to be that understanding. And there needs to, this gets back to what we were talking about earlier. I think there needs to be a shift in how players think.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: NBA players do not mind going out there and making themselves the center of attention.
0: (laughs) They really don't.
1: In fact, they relish it. And we expect it of them. Yeah, exactly. When they don't do it, like Kawhi Leonard's almost an anomaly, Right, right because Kawhi's quiet like it was a meme when he laughed because uh, Grant, that
0: was the weirdest laugh i've it, ever heard it, <laughs>
1: it, like it was a really weird laugh i'm uh. totally with you on that but but the fact that the guy showed emotion you know he he's he, the outlier yeah Ka- Kawhi Leonard is Chase Utley except baseball has like an abundance of Chase Utley
0: types Chase Utley is what we aspire to be to in baseball.
1: Exactly, exactly. Like if you're in a clubhouse and and you were with Chase Utley yep. and you ever did anything untoward, like anything that offended his sensibilities as just like a ball player, all he had to do was give you one look <laughs> and you would feel like the world was collapsing on you. yeah. And, and I, you know, if, if Chase Utley is the optimal baseball player and baseball needs to, and I think we probably agree with this, baseball needs to be, to be more open, to be more out there, to sell itself better. How do you reconcile that? I think we can. I really think
0: we can do it. Okay. Because, and hear me out. I think baseball, for all the traditionalism in baseball, we are a bunch of millennials playing this game right now.
1: Yeah. Yeah we
0: are. And like you I'm talking about this team right here, me, Lance, Bregman, you know, Verlander. We've got guys who understand the demographic that we are trying to reach. I mean, Garrett, th- there's guys all across this clubhouse who are part of this
1: generation. I, I was t- I was talking about this with Justin yesterday. I'm like, "You you know fame better than any baseball player." He does. Yeah. That's a voice that should be at the table. Mm-hmm. And You're a voice that should be at the table. And someone like Lance, you're right. Like going in – just people who figure out how to connect. There needs to be that engagement though. You can
0: marry those two. I really think there's – and that's – honestly, that's what this podcast was initially created to be. Was to be a marriage between the Chase Outleys of the world who for good reason is put on on this pedestal in Mm -hmm. the baseball world as – Th- as a shining example of you're trying to be like this guy. He works his ass off.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: He's a good, talented player. He uh, stays healthy. He does his work. He puts his very blue he collar. Cares. He cares yeah. a lot. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I've ever played with anybody who was around him who said anything negative about him. And so there is something to be valued in that a lot to be valued in that, I think, but to be able to showcase who he is as an actual person too because there is there's a person behind Chase Utley baseball player that fans probably never got to see
1: that's cuz Chase Utley never wanted to show it
0: and i think there has to be there has to be vehicles to allow people to marry the two mm-hmm. to find the personality behind Chase Utley to find the personality behind Justin Verlander and Garrett Cole and Lance McCullers and these people who people want to know? Fans want to know them.
1: I but I I understand why someone would not want to as well. You got to take the good with the bad. Right? You do. I mean, celebrity sucks in a lot. <laughs> it does. It's. I it's
0: mean, it's hard when, for me when I walk down the street and people confuse me with Ryan Gosling all the time.
1: When you have a face that people know, though, everyone wants to take a selfie with you. Everyone wants to say hi to you. And and look you guys get paid enough where yeah take deal it. deal yeah, with the asshole it. Right. like but at the same time that's also it, it's also something that we can't ignore as a burden yeah like we all we all have things in our life that take up time and when you're when you are a parent and when you are a professional the thing that you value most far and away is time.
0: Yeah, time is that is that resource that you never get back. It's exactly.
1: Unrenewable resource, yeah. That's exactly right. And so when that time is spent doing things that you don't feel like are important, you know, maybe you don't do them. But I think where players need to look at this is that, look, the game's not in danger. No. Okay. The game's not going away. Let's be let's
0: be clear here. Baseball is not going away. Yeah.
1: Baseball's not going away and it's not going away anytime soon. But what what is in in some danger, I think, is baseball's relevance. And if the owners aren't going to be the stewards of the sport like they should be, then it falls on the players to take that mantle and to Man. do and to do uncomfortable things that you may not want to do but that are there for future generations. There were battles that were fought. And when you read Lords of the Realm, you're going to see this. There were battles that were fought by previous generations of players that that are the reason you guys are making on average $4 million a year right now. Yeah, Players need to pay it forward in a different kind of way at this point. I think it's a way that is going to actually benefit the clubs as well. And with all of the animus against clubs right now, that may be a tough pill to swallow, but ultimately it's something that nobody knows baseball better than the players and the clubs working together. This I,
0: is going to be a clip that ends up being circulated because this is this is this really gets at the heart of it. This gets at the heart of what we're trying to do, both as players and front offices. We all care about making this game better. We totally. Do, but we are... I think you're right. We ha- we're we at odds enough. That we're not seeing the forest for the trees. And I think that there's more to it than that.
1: That's exactly what it is. And I, I I have talked with people on both sides who make this exact point, which gives me faith that those people eventually will connect with one another and figure this thing out. And, and again, we said earlier, there's two and a half years to do this. There's still time, guys. There's but, still time. But there needs to be like an understanding that – as much as as they are the other side as much as they are in some ways the adversary they're not the enemy no they're kind of the spouse <laughs> you're right. right you're right and and marriages
0: marriage we're is both a... married we both have kids we both know yeah we, i mean <laughs> i married you an amazing woman and we fight and we get over it and we move forward but without that without conflict there is no progress you can't move forward
1: I, I I would like to think that my marriage, I've been married for twelve years now, is as as strong as it's ever been. And and yet four nights ago, I no, I'm sorry, it was it was the the next morning, I get a text from my wife and it says, Snow day, Jack woke up at 3 a.m. and puked everywhere when are you coming home? (laughs) And getting that text, it's like, oh boy. Yeah. That's where MLB and the MLBPA are right now. It's a snow day, so the kids are at home and they got nothing to do. One of them puked all over the place. That's probably like the CBA that's going on right now. And when are you getting home is when are we going to start fixing this thing and making it better right and I just made my life into a baseball labor economics this is a metaphor great analogy. and I, and I feel like I have reached my peak and yeah, that, that mic is dropped. I'm, I'm done at this point because if I can get game of Thrones and my 11 year old puking into one podcast, guys, if you were playing the, uh,
0: the drinking game, uh, the 12 six podcast drinking game, you have checked all the boxes and you are now drunk because <laughs> Jeff has ticked them all. We have bingo. Here we go. Um, Thank you for this. I want to get a couple questions into you, which we we do before uh, with every guest. Um, they're not baseball related. We've gone down that road. I think we we've exhausted those resources right now. The last time you opened up your music streaming vehicle of choice, whether it's iTunes, Spotify, mm-hmm. your eight track, your
1: record player, does does like my like podcast a re- app work?
0: No, we're no? not. Okay, no, we're this is music. music. This is music. Music only. You seem like a record guy. I don't know if you have records or a record player. You strike me as one, yeah. You do. Um, What was the last thing that you listened to on purpose?
1: Um, When I write, I listen to... I put something on repeat. Okay. Like loop repeat. Loop repeat. All right. Like it turns into white noise. And my favorite thing to write to is um, explosions in the sky. Oh, yeah. All Um, right. And... I have the entire album, I like I found on YouTube the full album. Uh, I, I, this is a cold dead play, something along those lines. And if you've never heard it, it's like instrumental like experimental rock music. It's
0: like psych rock. yeah, yeah. and
1: <laughs> and I have 43 minutes and I put that on loop and i've I have listened to that record 43 minutes through, I would estimate probably. 1500 times. This is the soundtrack to the arm.
0: <laughs> yes, actually.
1: Yes. I should have thanked them in uh, <laughs> in like the at the end of the book.
0: Oh, man. That's amazing.
1: But uh if I'm writing a column where and I do most of my music listening when I'm writing like yeah. if I'm driving I'm usually podcast. podcasts. Yeah. yeah. If I'm writing a column where I need a little bit of like righteous anger, I will listen to Rage Against the Machine. Yep.
0: Uh Tom Morello was at our live band karaoke in Atlanta not too long ago and just gonna say Dark Horse, and if you come to Atlanta on a weekend, you got to go to Dark Horse and do some live band karaoke because the greats show up there. For real? Oh yeah! Wow, it's, ama- it's amazing.
1: Tom, I was I was taking my son to uh, both of my sons actually. My eleven year old was playing a basketball game, and we were listening to Rage on the way there, and I was explaining to him how amazing Tom Morello is. <laughs> I'm like, he's a political adv- activist, and he went to Harvard, and he can just shred on guitar and... You're, pay, you're paying it forward to your kid. You're I'm like, really These trying. are the lessons I, you really need to know. I'm trying to make I don't know how to teach sh- you how to woodwork or anything like this, but you need to know about Tom. I'm trying to make sure my kids don't listen to garbage music. <laughs> and I'm probably going to fail because like his parents, we always feel like our kids listen to trash music.
0: Yeah. I don't know what it's going to be in 20 years, but it's going to be something that I'm like, I yeah. can't listen to this. Like
1: if he's listening to EDM, I'm just going to feel like I've, I've done <laughs> wrong as a parent.
0: Oh, all right. And... Uh, second question, if you could give one piece of advice to somebody who is coming out of Syracuse University trying to be a sports writer in today's world, what would you tell them?
1: Um, I, I think this advice actually applies to sports writer, to baseball player, to factory worker, to doctor, to every walk of life. Motor matters most. You have to work hard. Yeah. And you have to work a lot and you have to sacrifice things that you might otherwise believe are, are imperative to your life in order to have the greatest success professionally. And I feel like when you start finding professional success, the rest of your life can come back into balance. It's not that you don't push the gas pedal anymore. It's that you just ease up on it. Yeah, But early in your career, I feel like establishing that work ethic and that standard for yourself is is far and away the most vital thing and that people recognize and appreciate those who are willing to put in more than maybe even they should.
0: That's like the great separator, right? A hundred percent. It feels like it was almost a prerequisite for past generations, like the that work ethic and the... I, you know what though, man? I don't know. The baseline you worked, was you, it not? You worked your 40 hours. Yeah, that's maybe true. Yeah, this gig economy is very different, right? It is. It is. There is no and set work day.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I remember internships that I would go to. I wouldn't I wouldn't take days off. And I'm um, I'm doing it right now. Like I started a new job January first. Right. Congratulations, by the way. ESPN.
0: ESPN's gotta be like, is that the Mount Everest of sports? Uh, is it not? I don't yeah. know. I don't know
1: anymore. I, I think so. Yeah? Okay. I, I hope so. I'm, I'm trying. <laughs>
0: it's, a, it's a big deal. And you're on TV now. We can I, see your
1: face. I know. It's uh, like America's loss. <laughs> I'm really sorry, guys. I wish I sucked and uh. did not have to subject you to that. Um, But I even, I'm 38 now. Mm-hmm. And I still feel like I have to prove that I'm going to work harder than everyone else. Yeah. Because I feel like I have to. And, and that is a... You know, it's it's tough because I've got two kids that I love and want to spend time with. And I've got a wife that I love and want to spend time with. And I've got things that I enjoy doing and work can get in the way sometimes. Yeah. And figuring out that balance is an extremely difficult thing to do. You know what it's like to take work home. Yeah, You try not to do it, but if you get knocked around, it's, you know, it's impossible not to because you care.
0: Yeah, I take work home to a home that's not actually mine in a city that I don't actually live in. Um, so yeah, I understand.
1: <laughs> but but to me, the like when I say motor, I mean like your ability to grind through, not just what's expected of you, but what you expect of yourself. Yeah, it's not it's not doing more than. Is expected of you. It's having such high expectations for yourself that they exceed what others can believe was possible. And I think if you're that person, no matter the industry, but especially in in a place like sports writing that's got as few jobs now as it does. Right. Thank you, The Athletic, <laughs> um, for for saving many jobs. Right. Uh, but but in a in an in industry that nobody knows what the future is going to look like hard work will absolutely separate you
0: well i i appreciate you being on here i told you yesterday i think the work you're doing is important i think it's good work and those in the industry that can be relied on to have the integrity and the trustworthiness to be able to believe what you say and believe what you put out there um, is something that doesn't come along too too often these days so jeff thank you for being on here um thank you for listening and we will see you next week